0: You can't just set and forget, where traditionally practices might have, let's say, set up on Myob and they stayed on Myob for 25 years. We've very much realised it's a constant changing environment and what tech stacks we're using today is quite possibly different tomorrow.
1: You're listening to Australia's Podcast for Accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to episode 383 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson, and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. Today, let's do a pipeline walkthrough with David Fitzgerald of Taxopedia and Factor 1 in Melbourne. Let's look at what Taxopedia's pipeline looks like from the first lead contact to the signing of tax returns and beyond. What apps do they use and how do they use them? Talking to David, I learned a lot, and I hope you will find it interesting, too, towards the end and i'm sorry this episode is over 70 minutes long actually it's no longer over 70 minutes i cut a few bits out where i just waffle on so it's now about 63 minutes probably depending on how long this little insert goes So just take breaks as you need them. Towards the end, we speak about the various acquisitions of accounting practices that David and Terry have done over the years. David very kindly allowed me to share the fee volumes of these acquisitions with you, but asked me to beep out the purchase price, which of course I have done. David also discusses the current market and the current rate. So you still get a good idea of what the market of accounting practices is doing at the moment, even with the beeped out prices. Now, the beep. Michael is a really good editor. Michael edited this episode and he's a really good editor. And when I sent him this episode for the beeps, I thought he would come up with some nice jingle or some nice melody. Instead, what he came up with is this. It sounds like we just made it to the farm. But he was really proud about it. So I left it. I felt mean sending it back. So... Apologies if you suddenly fall out of your chair because you have a shock and you suddenly hear this alarm. So that's the beep. That's what the beep sounds like. I'm really sorry. It's not the most melodic one. I had something else in mind, but hopefully it's okay. So here's David Fitzgerald of Texopedia and Factor 1 in Melbourne with a pipeline walkthrough. We don't
0: really specialize per industry per se. it's more so in the size and scope of business and the work thereafter, the services thereafter. So we sort of go more focused on the family-owned businesses. so we're not chasing the large corporates, and our target market is not the small sole practitioners either, uh, sole traders. So it's sort of family owned businesses operating via a company or a trust or partnership. So it's yeah, more so around size and, and scope of work.
1: When you say size, can you expand on that? It's probably
0: anywhere from, if you put a turnover number on it, it might be from two or 300,000 in turnover up to about 20, 25 million in turnover. Uh, so it does cover quite a wide range, but we're definitely not a firm that goes chasing the large corporates. That's not our target market.
1: And you provide financial advice. So I assume you have a financial advice license, correct? You have, a, I think it's called an AFSL license or so, correct?
0: Yeah, correct. That's a good point. I should actually update that because um, we've since handed our license back because the regulatory requirements and the costs associated with that license were just becoming a nightmare. So we now provide any financial advice via a third party referral
1: you probably would give a lot of business advice, correct? Or tax advice?
0: Yeah, so anything that we can cover under tax advice. So we can provide things like superannuation advice where we're talking about the tax implications. Um, but as far as if someone wanted to set up a self-made super fund and whether it's right for them and the investments and all that sort of stuff, that's an area we can't go into.
1: So it's you and your business partner. Yep. And do you have employees? Yeah, have-
0: we're 46, 46 team members.
1: And are they all in Australia or how many do you have offshore? Yeah,
0: so about two thirds in Australia and a third of our team members in the Philippines.
1: And have you employed those in the Philippines directly or through Tua or a different provider? Uh,
0: yeah, so we used to have them via a BPO, but uh, basically partway through the whole COVID situation, we've engaged all team members now direct.
1: And was that hard to get them out of the BPO? Uh,
0: it was a bit of a challenge, but we I was very strategic in our play that one day we thought we may outgrow a BPO. So I was very strategic in what we did there to make sure it was not going to cause us too many problems when we did exit.
1: And then how do you manage the offshore staff? Do you use Time Doctor or do you just pay your fixed wage?
0: No, so they're all on set salary, basically. We utilize. Timesheets.
1: Which app do you use for timesheets?
0: Uh, so it's all through Zero Practice Manager and Zero.
1: So your staff just enter their time manually into Zero timesheets, correct?
0: Correct, yes.
1: And then allocate it to the relevant client or just.
0: Yeah, so they complete a payroll timesheet, which tells us how many hours for the week, and they also complete their client timesheets.
1: I see. So is your billing still based on time or do you have fixed prices?
0: Uh, majority still based on time.
1: Ah, okay you have done quite a big transformation of your tech stack. Can you tell me what you did before? First of all, how quick was the transformation? Was it kind of an ongoing thing that just slowly happened over five or seven years so there's not such a clear start and finish? Or was it quite a quick overhaul that you know happened within six months or a year and so there's a very clear before and after?
0: Um, it's been an ongoing transition. So... What probably kicked us off that journey was moving from handy soft, handy tax over to zero. So I suppose a system that was very closed, didn't have much you could add to it, to going to zero really opened our eyes up that there is just so much out there. The tech opportunities were so significant. That was really the start of our journey. And that was probably coming on five, six years ago. I can't remember the exact date, would have been probably at least Six years ago?
1: 2017 or so.
0: Yeah, it would have been around 2017. And then from there, it has been a constant journey, really, of refining our tech stack, improving, trying new things, disregarding things that don't work as well as we hope. So it's been yeah a bit of a constant journey I'd suggest.
1: So since it has been a constant journey it probably doesn't make so much sense to look at before and after because you know where do you define before and You know, what do you define as after? So maybe do you mind if we just kind of go through your pipeline and see what apps you have for what part of the pipeline?
0: Yeah, no problem at all.
1: So basically, if you start with marketing, how do you find new clients? Is it just word of mouth or are you particularly active in social media or Google Ads? How do you get potential clients into the very start of your funnel?
0: Yeah, so we've got two brands. We've got our Factor 1 brand and we've got a brand called Taxopia. So Taxopia is predominantly an online brand that is all online driven, Google Ads, SEO, social media. And then we've also got our Factor One brand, which is more direct client referrals, word of mouth. I liken them to Jetstar and Qantas. Taxopia is our jet star. It'll get you from A to B, but it probably doesn't have all the bells and whistles for the bigger clients. Factor One's our more premium brand that has all the bells and whistles and probably our larger clients gravitate towards
1: I see. Okay, because when I went onto your Factor 1 website, I didn't see much content. It had a few blog posts, but it was just basically alerts or news, but not that much content aimed at a specific industry. So your content is really in Taxopia, which I haven't looked at, correct?
0: Correct. Yeah, Taxopia has a significant amount of more content. Yeah.
1: Okay, good. And then you drive this content into social media it has SEO, and you push it into Google Ads.
0: Yes, correct.
1: How much advertising do you do? Do you just rely on organic traffic, or do you do specific advertising? I mean, you said Google Ads, so you must be doing some. Yeah, so <laughs> we, we
0: we spend about four thousand a month in relation to paid ads. We also use an SEO agency to help with our SEO so that's another 1500 2 grand a month from an SEO and we've got two full time in house marketing team members as well
1: And these two in house marketing people, are they full time?
0: Uh, One is very close, four days a week. That's our onshore person who's our marketing manager. Uh, And then we've got an offshore marketing person as well in the Philippines who's full time.
1: And what do they spend most of their time on just writing copy or creating social media or probably all of the above, isn't it?
0: Yeah, all of the above. So a guy overseas is more tech side of things. So he likes the SEO, Google ads. All the social media, all the automated marketing stuff. I don't know the technical term for it, but the repeat marketing. So if you visit our site, the marketing will follow you. He's very good with that. And our local lady, she's very good with the content, the graphic design, the, the imaging, that sort of stuff.
1: Let's mainly talk about Texopia because factor 1 is more face to face connections etc so less techy so let's focus on Texopia. So you have a website for Texopia. Do you know how that is created? Did your marketing do this just very simple on Wix or is it more complicated Elementor or
0: Ah uh, yeah, so it's it's built on Elementor. It started off very basic. We actually purchased Taxopia. It was a brand that was in its very infancy. It was quite a small brand at the time. They'd done some good work and it built a bit of a presence, but we've sort of really grabbed it and ran with it. And from a technical point of view, it's come a long way to where it started.
1: Would you be able to tell me how much you paid for Taxopia?
0: Uh, so we bought the brand with clients. So it was turning over about um, 90000 in revenue a year, and we bought it
1: oh, Okay, that's quite a good price. That's less than a dollar per revenue. So you have this website on Elementor with blog posts, and now let's say one of those blog posts has been pushed into a social media, let's say onto Facebook. If now a client or a potential client, a lead, reads this Facebook note, And then wants to contact you. Can they do it via social media or do they have to call you?
0: Uh, No. So we try and direct all our traffic online. We do have a phone number there for clients that want to verify. Some clients just call us to go. I just really want to check. There's someone here in Australia. If I have a problem, I can talk to someone. But majority of it is all online. All of our clients are presented with a form stack form to complete. So from the point of view of right coming on a client all the way to through to completing their tax, BAS, everything, it's all form stack driven where they're completing the information they're providing a lot of us. It is predominantly focused at the small corporate, small company clients, uh, but we do have some larger clients also that use it.
1: So let's say I'm a small company client. I see your Facebook ad. I click on this post and I assume there is then a link to your website. Correct. I click on this link and that takes me to a landing page or directly to a form? Probably a landing page with a form. Yeah, landing
0: page and then it takes you through the basic offering. Um, With Taxopia, it's predominantly the tax and compliance focused. So it'll take you to a landing page, talk a little bit about the service we offer, and then present a selection of four choices. So we basically have a DIY choice, a basic standard and premium offering, and they provide different benefits and different level of knowledge from the client will sort of dictate which package they tend to choose.
1: It's, it's funny, by the way, that you offer four packages. Usually it's three and then most people choose the one in the middle. <laughs> Did you think of three, but you just couldn't fit it into three? Or
0: Yeah, there was three in the beginning, but we found there was a gap in our service offering that we're getting a lot of inquiries, which was the basic package.
1: So let's say I was on your Facebook ad, I clicked on it, I got onto your website, I choose option two. And then I assume option two takes me to a form, correct? Correct. And then this form is on your website. Is this form still built with Elementor, or does it already link to another Cim? Yeah, so CIM it's, it's powered
0: by Form Stack, uh, which is an encrypted platform that basically you can build any form you want. You can create any field, any requirement. So it's basically a platform to create fillable forms.
1: So I fill out this form that comes from Formstack. Where does that info now go? Does it feed directly into Xero or does it feed into your CIM? Where does my data go?
0: Basically, it stays within Formstack because it's encrypted for security purposes. It stays within Formstack and then we have to go in and retrieve it. And then depending on the package, let's say it's a a basic package where it's a company tax return, we'll utilise the information provided in the form, plus any additional information we request via email to prepare their tax returns.
1: Do you already ask for the TFN in this form?
0: We do, and that's why it's encrypted. Why it's encrypted, and, yeah. And we also do ID verification, which is required by the ATO. So for any new clients, it's got ID verification built in.
1: Okay, how do you do the ID verification? Do you ask for a photo of their passport, or how does it happen?
0: Correct, we ask for a photo, at least one um, photo identification document which needs to be uploaded with the form.
1: Is Formstack linked to a central database where you can then verify this passport, or it's just uploaded? It for you as a photo and you look at it? Or is there something happening with this photo?
0: So at the moment is a manual verification, but we're currently looking at service providers that link into the government databases and verify the, say, passport number or driver's license number. So we're currently in that progress at the moment of looking at different service providers.
1: Which service providers come to mind for that?
0: Um I'm trying to think of the one, um, our IT guys are helping us. I'm trying to think of the provider, but I can't. doesn't jump to mind at the moment.
1: Now, let's say I'm now working for you. And so I have this inquiry from this new potential lead. I look at the data in Formstack. Where do I enter this data manually? Because you said you retrieve it manually. Where do I enter it into?
0: So we use Zero Practice Manager as our tax okay, compliance XPM. software, XPM. So that's where it's processed. We are looking at um, building some integrations that we'll probably look at some point in time to move away from Formstack and have our own built portal that directly APIs into Xero and pre-fills a lot of the information across to remove that manual element. So that's currently something in development as well.
1: Are you thinking of using some solution in Xero for that, or an app that links to Xero?
0: It would be a purpose-built app, basically.
1: Would you build the app, or are you looking for a third-party app that will do this for you, that will link directly to Xero? because there are apps where you can link forms directly to zero or xpm to be more precise
0: yeah th- there is we've we've looked at a few and we've decided to go down the road of building our own so most of the ones on the market had limitations so we wanted to scale past just a simple api to zero only and most of the ones that we found were so an API was zero or practice manager, but then we wanted to do things like build an integration with ASIC so we can register companies direct, so our clients can register companies direct with ASIC. And then you start to go, well, that's not what they currently offer. So to be able to build the flexibility that we want, it, it came back to building our own.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I mean that goes straight from onboarding to to corporate compliance. Talking just quickly about the registration of a company, you're on CAS 360, correct?
0: Uh, we were. So we back originally we were on the CAS desktop. We migrated fairly early on across to the CAS 360 and Simple Fund 360. We then, about or two years ago, coming on two years ago, we've actually changed to now Infinity for our corporate compliance.
1: Okay. And then also to Class for SMSF?
0: No, we decided to keep BGL Simple Fund for Super Funds.
1: Oh, really? That's unusual to be on BGL for SMSF and then corporate compliance with Now Infinity. Usually the two go hand in hand. What made you change to Now Infinity? Because I've just changed from Now Infinity to cast 360. When I say just, I mean about six months ago. What made you change to Now Infinity?
0: The pricing basically that was the biggest issue. So we purchased a firm that had a significant number of companies, around about um, eight hundred and fifty companies. And CAS was going to be about three times the price.
1: So, coming back to your pipeline, so I'm working for you, and I now have manually entered the data into XPM. What happens next? I think the next step now is that I sent an engagement letter to the client. How do you do that? Are you on PI or do you have a different solution? How do you do that?
0: So with the form stack, the engagement is built in. So we actually, we gather the information, we engage the client, we check their identity and we collect 50% payment upfront through the initial form.
1: So that means in form stack, you already sent out the engagement letter.
0: It's basically in the form. So in the form, it says, tick this box, you're agreeing to our terms and conditions and engagement. And there's a hyperlink taking them back to all the terms of engagement.
1: Okay, so Formstack is a lot more sophisticated than I thought. It's not just the forms itself, but it also gives you a payment option and I assume also a signing option. Correct. And does Formstack give you a native inbuilt signing and payment or are these apps you have to bring in?
0: Um, So the the payment is an option. They've already got that within. So the functionality is there to collect credit card detail or the encryptions there that we're allowed to collect credit card details. There is not a payment gateway within. We then utilize Stripe within XPM to actually charge the credit card.
1: And the signing, is the signing built in or do you need to plug in another app for that?
0: It's not a signing per se, it's a click consent. So basically it's a click consent to appointment. The signing we do collect is upon signing of tax returns And signing of financial statements once they're prepared.
1: So at the moment, we have the engagement letter. And so if I agree with you, now me being the client again, if I agree with the engagement letter, then I just click. And that facility to sign through a click, that facility is inbuilt into Formstack. So you didn't have to plug in another
0: Correct. Yeah. Okay.
1: But for the payment, why there is an API, you do need to plug in another app, and that is Stripe. Correct. So now the client has the engagement letter signed. They paid 50%. How do you get the job into XPM? Or let me say it differently, how do you manage your jobs? Do you have them just in XPM? Or does the signing of the engagement letter, does that feed a job into some job management software? It
0: doesn't at this stage. And that is one thing that why we were looking with this app that we wanted to build. So we're ideally hoping to find something off the shelf. They would complete the form. It then creates the job client records, everything into XPM. At the moment, that is a manual process that we take their completed forms we check their ID if it's a new client and then we create the records in XPM.
1: So you create jobs in XPM. Have you looked at carbon or another job management? Yeah, website? we have
0: we have looked at carbon and we've also looked at FYI docs. We haven't made a decision on either way of those. We found at this point XPM was sufficient. The FYI docs and their job flow management and also Carbon at this stage don't have an integration with Formstack. So it would be a manual process either way. So there would be going from the Formstack data into Carbon or into XPM or into FYI docs. It would all be a manual process at this point.
1: So you have the engagement letter in Formstack. You create a manual job in XPM, Mm -hmm. and then your team gets onto it and does the work. Just very quickly, back to your engagement letter, how granular is your pricing? You said most of it is per time, hence you wouldn't have so many different positions. So,
0: Yeah, I suppose our Taxopia brand is fixed pricing. Um, Our Factor 1 is very much time build. Taxopia, we have the four service packages that all have set prices, uh, and it's a client choosing one of those.
1: So, you just have those four prices. I assume it's a monthly subscription and that is it. So, you don't distinguish, for example, based on turnover or whether you have Division 7A issues or whether you need an international dealing schedule or whatever you need. It's all covered in this set price, correct?
0: To a certain extent. So, at the moment, we are a one-off fee. We are looking to move to a subscription model.
1: So one-off fee per year, correct?
0: One-off fee per task, yeah. So whether it's a BAS preparation, tax preparation, whatever the service is, it's a one-off fee per task. But we do have exclusions on it. So you mentioned Division 7A. So in our packages, we'll raise that as an issue. But if they want assistance resolving that issue, then there is additional charges associated. And then the only difference between our standard and premium package is clients that turn turnover less than a mil or over a mil.
1: So you have some size built into it.
0: Yeah. And then we find clients, once they tend to be over the million dollar size mark, they tend to want to then have more personalized one-on-one service. So they tend to gravitate across to our Factor 1 brand because we find they're the type of clients who will ask a lot more questions. uh, And that's at a point in time where we'll generally raise and say, hey, look, we think you're ready to move over across to the Factor 1 side of the business where you'll have a dedicated client services manager, you'll have that client services manager through your whole journey, where under Taxopia, they may not have the same accountant working on their jobs year to year, those sort of things, quarter to quarter.
1: Your emails for Taxopia and Factor 1, do you have different email addresses? So when We do, you, correct. When you write an email, you can choose between the different email addresses. So while they are small, you email from David at Taxopia, and when they get bigger, you email them from David at Factor 1, correct?
0: Yeah, we do. We have that ability to swap between emails. We also have dedicated team members. So we've got dedicated team members that just work in tax and dedicated team members that work in factor one. So we don't have too often where we actually need to swap and change emails these particular team members just work solely in our Taxopia brand.
1: And how do you manage your email? Does it just sit in Outlook or Gmail or do you have a software that sorts and saves them per client?
0: So we currently use suite files, but haven't been happy with it for a little time. I have constant issues with the integration with Outlook, breaking, not working, have to reinstall it. Exactly. I find that they were good in the early days and I don't know if they've quite kept up the tech investment, but it, it seems to have been on a sliding scale from our
1: experience. Um, yeah. So that's have... why
0: we're looking for alternatives.
1: So at the moment you're on Sweet SweetFiles, but... To be determined.
0: Yes, correct. And then
1: also your document management then would be on Suite Files, correct?
0: Yeah, Suite Files powered by SharePoint through Microsoft.
1: And then your task management is in XPM.
0: XPM, correct.
1: So now you do the work. If you need to get some more information, you just email the client they send back. For example, let's say they have an investment property and you haven't got the annual rental statement. You email them, they email it back to you, and then you save it through sweet Files, correct?
0: Correct. Yep.
1: So now you have prepared the uh, company tax return and you send it to them and I assume you do that through XPM and then they sign through XPM correct how does the signing happen
0: We looked at XPM's built-in signing system we decided to go with DocuSign Okay um, there was a few reasons behind that decision one was at the time when we first jumped on DocuSign we were at Cas 360 and we wanted one system because Clients are rightly so very untrustworthy of emails, so we didn't want to have situations where we're sending them different platforms, different way to sign documents, whether it be their company annual return out of CAS and then their tax return. So we wanted a one system, and that's where we just obviously went with DocuSign. Um, It was the predominant solution through CAS at the time, and that subsequently followed through to now Infinity, which has the same DocuSign. Um, So that's where we sit.
1: We are also with DocuSign, and I think with Cas360 you don't actually have a choice. I think it just comes with DocuSign. Whereas I think in Zero you have a choice. Either choose Zero Sign, which I don't actually know which signature provider that is, or you can choose. I think choose... it was
0: Adobe Sign in the early days. I don't know now. The big issue that we had is majority of the signing platforms were all portal login based. Where you had to log in to be able to sign the documents.
1: Into their portal.
0: Into either the solutions portal, Zero's portal, whoever it was, their portal for the client to sign the document. And we just foreseen that as being a big problem, that yes, lost lost and forgotten passwords and we'd be constantly bombarding with how do I log in, what's my password, that sort of stuff. So we really looked for a solution that didn't require that login element, that it was more powered by the email link.
1: Yeah, that's a good point because I must be using zero sign for XPM. And I constantly have the problem that people log in with a different email than the email in xpm you know let's say the director is peter and he has two email addresses and email address a is the one he logs in with in zero but then he actually has changed his email and his predominant email is now email b and then he logs in with the wrong email and then he can't get into zero so you are saying that doesn't happen when you do docusign
0: No, basically, once we do the collation, so we call it a collation, we'll put together, let's say it's a company with financial statements and a tax return, and maybe the individual director's tax return as well. We'll bundle that up into a collation package within DocuSign. So it basically puts it in one document, and it emails through a secure link to the client to their email address for them to click on flow through and sign. There is an optional login with DocuSign but it's not mandatory and you can also enable two-step authorization with also sending a link to a mobile phone number. So if anyone's worried about um, security and those sort of things that just not anyone that gets hold of that email can click on the link, you can set it up so They click on the link and it also sends them a code to their phone to jump in with. So there's no need to remember passwords and logins and that sort of stuff.
1: Okay. So that's quite good. You receive an email. It basically just says, please sign. And then you don't have to log in. You basically just sign.
0: Yeah. So you just click the link. It takes you through to the DocuSign platform. They sign, they review and sign the documents. And then at the end of it, once they hit complete, it actually takes them to a page on our website that then prompts them to fill in a survey about the quality of service they received. Oh, okay. So it sort of looks and feels like it's coming from us, but it's actually directing them to the DocuSign system to sign the document and then directing them back to our website once they sign off.
1: I see. And when they're on the DocuSign system to sign, do they realize that they are with DocuSign or do they think they are with Taxopia?
0: I'd be very surprised if too many clients realize. Most now, we send them an announcement email first because the link comes from DocuSign. The email says something like factor one or Taxopia at DocuSign. So we found some clients were a little bit unsure about clicking the link. So we send them an email from our central client services email that says, your collated package is on its way. Here's a summary of your results. Here's the work that's included. If it's an invoice for the remaining payment, and then the second email arrives within a few minutes with a link across to DocuSign to sign the package.
1: So that is a very nice user experience for your clients.
0: We were timid in the beginning that clients that particularly may not be tech savvy, how would they respond? One uh, situation sticks in my mind where I had a quite an elderly uh, client in her 80s and she raved that she loved it. She thought it was very easy, simple. She goes, this is much easier than me having to get documents in the post and take them back to the post office and send them back to you or get in the car and drive an hour to your office to sign them off. So things like that, that I was quite pleasantly surprised that clients I thought may not adapt, loved it.
1: Oh, that's good. Perfect. So if you go back into XPM, you have finalized the text return. Mm -hmm. And so then you then send it out to the client. So then rather than clicking the blue Button that says request e signature, you actually just download it as a PDF onto your hard drive and then you upload it into DocuSign. Is that how it works? Or have you plugged DocuSign directly into your XPM?
0: Yeah, it's more of a download and upload type of situation, drag and drop type of situation where, particularly where it's more than one piece of work. So you might bring in the financial statements for the company first bring in the tax return for the company, then bring in the co- director's tax return after. Uh, it all sort of flows in the one document. You flag each signing position and what the client needs to do. So we found majority of clients just click on the sections they need to and hit sign, particularly where they repeat clients and there's that trust. A lot of them will just click on the signing buttons. They look at the most important thing, which is the tax outcome for most clients. Uh, And yeah, that's basically Mm -hmm. the process. They'll click on the signing and then complete. And then we get a notification back on our end that they've signed off. Also, in that process, there's a spot for myself to sign as the director signing off the comp reports and things like that.
1: Yes. So, it first comes to you and then once you have signed, it goes to your clients. Correct. So, the tax return has gone into DocuSign, has gone out to the client. They have signed it. And now that they have signed it, I assume you go back into XPM to lodge it. Is that how it works?
0: Yeah. So, with Taxopia, we collect the final 50% before lodgement. So in the terms and conditions, it's paying the final 50% before lodge. So we collect the signed package. It sits there and waits until the payment is received.
1: Okay, good. It's actually very good that you mentioned the second lot of payment. I had forgotten about that. So that doesn't happen as part of the signing, correct? That is kind of still separate in form stack, correct?
0: Um, So the payment, that final 50% payment is issued with the collation email. So rather than get them to fill in another form, we attach the invoice with the collation that has their first 50% payment coming off as a deposit and then the invoice out of zero blue with the balance of payment, and that has the Stripe payment links attached.
1: Okay, good. So if I'm working on this client now and the tax return is ready, I upload the tax return and financial statements into DocuSign and send that out to sign. And then also, and this probably happens before I send out the documents, I go into ZeroBlue. I create the uh, remaining invoice although you probably already have the invoice and it just has the uh, first down payment allocated to it so the invoice is still sitting in zero blue and you sent that out again correct you basically just send out an invoice through zero blue correct we send the invoice
0: on the collation email so that an email that goes out announcing and say hey we've completed your tax return this is your tax position this is any issues or concerns we've identified and also attached is your invoice for the final 50% payment. You'll get your docu DocuSign to sign off soon. If you're happy with everything within, please make payment and then we'll process lodgement once payment is cleared.
1: Okay. And this collation email is manually written in, I assume, Outlook. Are you on Outlook or Gmail? Or it is.
0: It's all template-based. So we utilize Outlook, but we use the template function within Outlook. So Suite Files has email templates. So we basically prepare an email template that has all of that in there with a few highlighted fields that need to be completed. Things like your company tax position is X, the payment due date or the refund will be processed by Y date. So it's all powered by the Sweetfile file email templates.
1: So that means I go into Sweetfile, file, I choose the um, template for collation email, I have to manually enter the data you just mentioned, like your final refund or text that is XYZ. I have to enter that manually, correct? That doesn't get pulled out of it doesn't CLM. know okay good so i manually enter all this i write what concerns i have i mean once the tax return is finished you probably don't have any more concerns or you know you might highlight something that we need to look at in the future or what needs to happen next or so and then you send that out and you attach the invoice to that i assume you have to manually attach the invoice to that email correct
0: correct we do yes
1: and then that email just goes out there is no signature required but it has a payment link in it that the payment has to be done. I assume it's a manual process that I have to check that the invoice has been paid before I lodge the return, correct? That is a manual process. That is
0: a manual process. So all returns, once they're completed and go out for signing, get suspended in XPM. So, we suspend them so they can't be accidentally lodged.
1: How do you suspend them? You just have them sitting in draft, correct?
0: No, there's a suspension function within XPM. So, once the documents come back signed, we mark them as ready for filing, but there's a function with XPM that says suspend return and it means you can't accidentally lodge it.
1: So they they are in XPM. They sit in draft. Then they go to complete. Mm-hmm. Then you probably mark them as out for out filing. For, yep.
0: Yeah, out, out for signing. Sorry.
1: Uh, yeah, out for signing. Then when the signing comes back, you mark them as ready signed.
0: to be. I think it's yep. ready to be filed. I think. Yep.
1: Ready to be filed, but then you click suspend. Yes. And then you can't undo the suspend until you have checked the payment has arrived.
0: Correct. Yeah.
1: And it's really frustrating when a client just doesn't pay and you check this payment 15 times. Do you have a direct debit arrangement with your clients?
0: There is the option. So we provide the option of Stripe or Go Cardless on the payment options. So under Go Cardless, there is a direct debit option. So anyone that does want that, or selects that option, we can do it. We find 90 plus percent prefer to manage the payments themselves. There are a small element that are happy with the direct debit, but yeah, we find an overwhelming majority want that control to go, yep, I'm happy with the tax returns, now I'll pay you guys.
1: So when the engagement letter goes out and you have this pay button through Stripe, your client can choose whether they do a direct debit with GoCardless or whether they do two payments, one prepayment and then a down payment. Correct. Yeah.
0: So the first payment, basically, when they're submitting the form, it brings up the terms and conditions, the initial form, and part of that is they're consenting to the 50% payment. So when they hit submit on the form, unless their credit card details bounce or something like that, we're pretty much assured of that first payment going through because they've consented to it and provided the payment details. It's just that final 50% payment, we found that In the early days, we did basically say that once we've completed your work and you've signed it, we'll charge your credit card automatically for the second part. We are just finding some resistance around that and thought, well, no, we'll go back, give them the option to make the second payment rather than enforce it. But it is something that we'll sort of Probably revisit once we've got our portal built. Yes. That it probably, we may end up going to a direct debit that it automatically charges them the second 50% when they sign the tax return off, something like that. We've got our main Factor 1 brand, which we've very much no lodgement until pay. And yeah, at some stage, we will probably look to go to the full direct debit system. The non-lodgement until paid that has solved our accounts receivable issue that majority pay. The only thing is it's it's a manual process to check who's paid for the day. These are the might be 15 tax returns connected with that group. So all of these 15 can be lodged. That's the manual element that we wanted to solve.
1: Yes. Yeah, so there's a manual element. And also, if you have no payment until lodged, yes, you already have the prepayment. But for the second part, it might not come to lodgement. They might drag it on for the next three years because it's a high tax debt or they don't agree with how you do it because they don't like that they have a Division 7a problem. Or they're not happy that you moved all their private expenses back into shareholder loans or something. You know, you are still then dependent on that, the thing actually gets lodged in time.
0: Yeah, we haven't had too much of an issue with that. We get an odd few. It tends to be they're not happy with the tax payable result. tends to be the odd few. But largely, if we look at where we were with significant accounts receivable, that constant chasing process, the no lodgement before payment solved, 95% of it. Um, There is that last 5% that um, do drag it out and things like that.
1: Okay. Well, that's good. So it seems to work quite well for you. I have at least one more question for you. Now, before I ask that question, let me just very quickly give you a word from our sponsor, DocuSign.
0: When it comes to tax talks, I'm no podcaster, but I am an accountant. And every day I advise on claims and deductions. Trouble is, I hadn't been looking after my own business Well, with the government's tech rebate ending soon, I signed up to DocuSign, and I've gone 100% digital. It's streamlined everything from onboarding to invoices. Now I kind of wish I'd taken my own advice sooner. Sign up for your free trial at docuSign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign.
1: Do you have an API between Xero and 4Stack, for example, through Xavier? Because I think FormStack doesn't link directly into Xero, correct?
0: Correct. It doesn't. No, we don't currently have one. And that goes back to the progress around let's building our own portal. So at some stage with our own portal, the need for FormStack would actually drop away. So it'll be all on our own forms that would. API directly into XPM.
1: Because at the moment you have the engagement letters basically siloed in Formstack, correct? Correct. They're not in your documents in suite files, but they are basically siloed.
0: The Formstack does produce a PDF document at the end of it, so we do grab that PDF document and save that through suite files into the client's folders, so it is there. But it's a manual process. It's all in the one form, basically, so it's not a separate engagement letter that's standalone.
1: Just out of curiosity, this that you want to build. Have your IT people already kind of mentioned how they want to build it, in what software?
0: I've actually got the proposal sitting on my desk from their engaged party. I did ask them the question. I think they did tell me the platform. I can't remember off the top of my head now what it would be powered by. It's only early days and I must admit I come from an accounting background. I'm not a. I'm learning all this tech stuff along the way. So although I have a interest in it, in a and a passion for it around the marketing, the automation side of things, it's not a formal training sort of thing. So I'm just learning a lot of it along the way.
1: Yes, that's fine. I, I'm not a tech person either. I was just curious, you know, because building your own portal is a big exercise. Yeah. You have sent out the tax returns, so everything is done. What do you do until next year when you have to do the next? Tax return, or when you have to do the next pass. I assume you leave your clients in peace, or do you have regular email updates? You know how active are you between compliance touch points? How active are you in between?
0: We try to find a balance where we don't want to. We all get sick of receiving those thousand emails from the one company. So we try and find a balance that relevant topics that we will email and social media contact our clients with. And it's just deciding on a case-by-case basis. Our marketing team will prepare the communication up and send it out. So most of it is information based that we're not hard selling. It's for argument's sake, all of our super fund clients would have received the correspondence about the proposed changes, the $3 million cap or increased taxes on super. So we try and pick and choose client bases to receive client communications. We trialed a newsletter in the beginning and it was not worth the time. Yeah, nobody reads it. No one reads it. The open rate was like 8%. The unsubscribe rate was like quite high and we're going the time and effort people don't want to know. But when we've gone to targeted communication on a topic, so one particular topic per email, we find our open rates are significantly better and our unsubscribe rate is very low.
1: And how do you manage these emails? So for example, this example about the 3 million for SMSFs. So you want to send this email to all SMSFs. How do you do that? Do you do that within SweetFights?
0: So we've got the good old Mailchimp and we've also got a program called Boma. I think it's B O M A. So they're both effectively email platforms that we produce mail lists Based on certain criteria. So, if it's for argument's sake, SMSFs, we'll produce a mail list out of XPM based on those fields. So, we we'll produce a field that we only want super funds, produce a list out of XPM, and then use that within, say, MailChimp to send the email.
1: So, that means the um, mailing list is basically created in XPM. There's this search where you can list quite detailed search functions that then gives you a very A granular list of the information you want. For example, all SMSFs that are still active. And then you say, give me email address and first name and last name, et cetera. And then you would upload that into MailChimp and then that would be one group. And then you do the email in MailChimp or BOMA.
0: Correct. And the good thing about it is also the reports out of XPM can utilize tax return fields. So we can do things like produce mailing lists for clients that have Rental properties or high income earners that might be applicable to Division 293. So we can prepare pretty specific email lists relevant to a topic. So let's say, I don't know, thinking back to when they um, removed travel expenses for rental properties we could produce an email list with all clients with rental properties and send it specifically to them. So we're not sending all of our clients irrelevant information that doesn't apply to them about travel expenses for rental properties.
1: I didn't actually know that. I didn't know that in XPM, you can create a list based on what's in the tax return. That surprises me.
0: It's not everything. There are limitations within it. And look, XPM's report... And not perfect. It would be great if it was all in one report. Sometimes we find we actually have to produce two reports and merge them together to get the data we want into one report. The tax fields is an element. So sometimes we've got a team member that's a bit of a guru on it, but for argument's sake, if you want a report that might have their email addresses, their spouse's name, and do they have a rental property. You may not be able to produce that all in one report and you have to produce it in two reports with their tax file number on both report and then merge with their tax file number. So everything's on the one report. It's mm-hmm. a function we have communicated to zero several times. It would be great if there was basically one central hub that you could build any report you could think of. But at this stage, that hasn't happened.
1: Yeah, but it sounds very clever. Uh, David, are you okay? It's something I should have asked you at the start. Are you okay to tell me roughly what your turnover is? You have 46 staff, two thirds of that are in Australia, one third is in the Philippines. Could you tell me roughly what your turnover is per year?
0: Yeah, so we're around about 4.2. Million.
1: That's a very good size. In, in the market of small to medium accounting practices, that already puts you quite high up.
0: Yeah. And we've recognized we're probably overstaffed for our turnover levels. But when we factor in things like you've got a HR manager, you've got two people in the marketing team, you've got an IT person, a lot of different support services that come into it as well, and also the capacity there to grow. So we try and make sure that we've got capacity in all of our teams to grow, that we're not running them right at the edge of their capacity
1: limits. You do need some spare capacity, otherwise you can't grow. Sorry, but can we just quickly talk about these numbers? As you may remember, in episode 200, Ed Chen of Chen and Naylor and Weiss Mentoring outlined the ideal team structure. That's what he called it. And of course, that is just a model, a theory, and you can structure a team in many different ways. You can structure a team in any way. But I find a chance model very helpful. Just to rejig your memory, you have five grinders who do the actual work, the production work. And they can be based in Australia or offshore. But nowadays, more and more often, they're based offshore. One of these five grinders is the production manager who keeps the production on track and manages who does what and so on. Then you have the client manager assisted by an assistant client manager. And these two manage the communication with the client. They are the ones based in Australia who speak with the client, meet with the client, address any issues and so on. They are the central point of contact. And this team of seven, five grinders plus the client manager and their assistant, These seven manage a fee volume of up to 1 million Australian dollars with inflation that is probably now 1.1 or 1.2 million now. But for now, let's stick to 1 million because my math is going to work just nicely when we talk about David's structure. And then above all the uh, teams, you have the partner. So for a fee revenue of 3 million you have 3 teams and for 7 million you have 7 teams. Of course this is not without its limits. I think from memory at Chen suggested up to 5 teams per partner so 5 million of revenue per partner but that's not set in stone. So now coming to David Fitzgerald and Terry Chung they have a fee volume of 4.2 million. So that means they need 5 teams. And those five teams would give them free capacity for another $800,000. The $800,000 is the $4.2 million to get to the $5 million. David and Terry have 46 staff, but two of these are marketing, one HR and one IT. So they have 42 accounting staff, at least that's how I understood it. And that's exactly five teams. Five teams times seven staff in each team is 42. So, David and Terry are spot on with their team size. They have a capacity for another $800,000 of revenue, but they are not far off. Just purely based on revenue, their team size is spot on as far as this model goes. And everything is just roughly speaking. But back to David. Coming back to your size, I once did an episode about the top 100 accounting firms in Australia. You know how the Australian Financial Review Publishers, yeah, the the Top 100, yeah, yep. and I did an interview with the journalist who does it, episode 226, if you want to listen to it. It's called AFR Top 100 Accounting Firms. The smaller Top 100, I don't think they were far away from you. I think you might be big enough to soon be on the Top 100 list. Do you yeah, think so? so? Have you look, looked
0: into it? It is funny that you mentioned that. It is a quasi-business goal that we have that one day would like to be on that list. I know it's not a complete list from the point of view. I know there's firms that are big enough to be on that list but choose not to be.
1: Because you have to fill out a form, et cetera, and some people choose not to disclose those that information. Not to disclose it, yes. Because yeah. you so, have to, for example, disclose your turnover because that is, of course, one of the criteria. And I think the turnover gets published.
0: It does, correct. So I think last time I looked at it, The position 100 was a bit over 5 mil turnover from memory.
1: so you're not far away. Yeah. I actually have one more question for you, and that is, you mentioned two acquisitions. You mentioned once you bought a firm with 80 companies, which triggered the change from CAS 360 to NI, but you then also mentioned Texopia you originally purchased when it had a turnover of 90,000 and you purchased... Are those the only two companies you purchased or have you purchased quite a few more to get to the 4.2 million or is the 4.2 million a lot of organic growth?
0: It's a mixture of both. We have had a few other smaller tuck-ins in our early days. They were sole practitioners, relatively smaller fee bases. The main tuck-in that we had or purchase that we had was our – we've got an office in Shepparton in regional Victoria Um, That was the one we spoke about earlier that had 800-odd companies. So that was our largest acquisition by a substantial way.
1: Can you remember how much you paid for that firm?
0: So... That one's about one point six million fees. It was a bit of a distressed sale. There was a few personal things happening with the vendor, so we got it quite cheaply at about Uh. cents in the dollar.
1: Apart from some very small accounting practices, those were your two big purchases. Yeah,
0: and we've recently made another mid-size. Tuck in that was in or purchase, which was in uh start of July twenty two, just gone.
1: How much turnover was that? Uh,
0: that was in the vicinity of six fifty to seven hundred.
1: And can you remember what you paid for that?
0: That's around the that was a
1: So that's quite a high price.
0: It was. It had a very there was lots of strategic benefits to that one. So they're basically in the building right next door and attractive client base, good similarities with our team members so there was lots of reasons why we decided to pay a premium but that said majority are changing hands for north of a dollar these days we still actively look Where, to be honest we'd be talking between one to two vendors at any given time and the overwhelming expectation in the market at the moment i'm finding is dollar 10 or north
1: and so you are in constant contact with a business broker who specializes in accounting practices?
0: Yes, several of. So we speak to, I think, three or four different ones. We're pretty selective on our criteria these days.
1: Is it still a seller's market so that you have one Very seller? Very much and- so. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. So one I was speaking to yesterday, uh, they mentioned, again, I suppose business brokers, you've you got to be a little bit wary of. They talk up the sale, but they're telling me they've had in excess of 60 inquiries on that listing.
1: Oh, the one you just bought?
0: Uh, the one that we're inquiring about recently. So it's one that's on the market at the moment and they're saying that um, they've had 60 inquiries, therefore the vendor is basically not up for negotiations. It's This is the price, take it or leave it, pretty much.
1: But there's also a little bit of inflation in it, of course. Actually, no, but the uh, turnover to purchase price, you know, of course, you also have inflation in the turnover price. It's, it's
0: supply and demand. The the demand yeah. outstrips supply 50 to 1. There's a lot of firms looking to buy and there's not a lot on the market. So that's, I think, where the price increases come from when we first did our first acquisition, it was significantly less than a dollar and now it's you'd be hard pressed to find an acquisition for less than a dollar for dollar.
1: It really surprises me because we are all told to move into niches to be very specialized and the firms that come onto the market are usually still older style practices, hence they are not operating in a specific niche but are quite broad. Hence, I'm surprised that there's still so much demand for these big bulky practices that basically serve a lot of different industries. Yeah,
0: to be honest, I'm not a massive buyer into the niche, Is in niching on industries. There is an element to that. um, but You niche on service. Yeah, on service, on, on the type of business rather than the industry of the business. And we sort of ventured down the road of all these bells and whistle services, Futurly Fathom, all the add-on reporting apps, all that sort of stuff. There is an element of clients that like that by far and away. That's a small element from our experience that there's some very progressive business owners that want that. But they tend to be the younger generation, majority of business owners that have been doing it for 15, 20, 30 years. They go, I know my numbers. I know what I look at. I don't need all these bells and whistles type of stuff. And for that matter, the whole monthly service package as well. It's it's interesting. I know a lot of firms go with it, but from my experience, I haven't seen too many or heard of firsthand too many that improve their profitability because of it.
1: Hence, you looked into Futurly and similar apps, but you actually are not using them.
0: Uh, There's a small client base, small portion of our clients that do, but majority not. Majority want the, the core tax and compliance advice service. And we found the ones that really were chasing the fixed price packages were the abusers. They were the ones that would call you every week, would ask you questions that they could easily know the answer to themselves. But it was a case of them paying a fixed price, I'll just might as well, rather than find the answer myself, I'll ring the accountant. And then we're having the hard discussions, which would often lose clients about No, here's the terms and conditions you agreed upon. This is the level of service that's in that package. It's not a free-for-all call us every time of the day. And the ones that really wanted that and wanted that fixed price, we said, well, we're not probably the service providers for you. And I think a lot of service providers that go down that path, you end up with a balance. You end up with the abusers. You end up with the ones that don't fully utilize it. And that sort of balances each other out. Um, but we're finding our biggest source of new clients on bigger clients are coming to us saying, I'm paying this monthly service package of 25 grand a year and don't use any of these bells and whistles. I don't want it all. But that's what they signed up to. They got into the marketing of it in the early days. And majority of our new, larger, established clients are coming from that. They were actually going back to the fee for service model. It's just been a constant learning. We've found that, particularly as we've got to the size of organization we are now, that it is constant learning about new solutions, new applications that you can't just set and forget. Where traditionally, practices might have, let's say, set up on Myob and they stayed on Myob for 25 years. We've very much realized it's a constant changing environment and what tech stacks we're using today is quite possibly different tomorrow. So it's just an ever-evolving field and it's it's something I've got a bit of an interest in and hence why I suppose we're talking today.
1: Welcome back. So this was a pipeline walkthrough with David Fitzgerald of Factor One and Taxopedia. A big thank you to David for allowing us to have a look under the hood. I found it very helpful. I hope you did too. And let's do this again soon. It's good to learn from each other. In the next episode, episode 384, let's talk about transfer pricing. Benedikte Ulrich of Anderson Australia will walk you through the five methodologies you have available to determine your transfer price. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for the support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.